I think that's the most energetic introduction I've ever had. And it wasn't even live. <laughs> that, that is something. That's a lot of energy. Uh, listen, it, it's been uh, a delight for me uh, to be with you already uh, from the moment that I walked in, uh, actually on the wrong side of the building and set off the burglar alarm. Uh, but from the moment I walked in, uh, everyone's actually been very kind to me, very gracious, very welcoming. Uh, so I, I am very glad to be here. And uh, tonight, I want us to spend some time looking at Psalm 19. Uh, Psalm 19. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn there uh, with me to Psalm chapter 19. I'm going to read the entire chapter, just 14 verses, and then we'll, in God's grace, start walking through it together. Okay, so Psalm uh, 19. This is the word of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Before we consider this passage together, let's pray. Father, this is your word. This was mentioned earlier in the service. Your word is breathed out. It comes from you. And since your word is your own, it is your spirit who knows all that it means, and it's your spirit who we desperately need to teach us 
And we need your spirit to apply these things in our hearts. Lord, we look to you. We, we confess that we are, we are helpless if you don't do the work. But Lord, we trust you. Uh, we trust your power. We trust your glory. We trust your holiness. Lord, and in Jesus Christ, we trust your love. Uh, we trust that in Jesus, you have already displayed your, your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy and your love for us as sinners. And so we come to you in Jesus' name. We come to you in his character. We come to you in his righteousness. And we ask that tonight you will bless us. Lord, bless us so that we can be a blessing to others. And bless us so that we can return every blessing we receive from you in praise of your name. So open our hearts now. Give us clear minds to understand your word. Give us open hearts to receive it. And give us the strength needed to apply it in our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, if you're familiar with philosophy, which undoubtedly most of you are, uh, you'll recognize a few of the great names uh, in Western thought. Uh, Immanuel Kant is one of them. And Kant, on his tombstone, had a saying inscribed, and it was roughly that, um, you know, two things always fill me with awe. The starry sky above and the moral law within. Starry sky above, the moral law within. And when you look at human beings and, and you think about the world, those are actually things that are fairly universally true in human experience. Uh, there is something of grandeur and glory which is inescapable in human experience cross-culturally when people actually take the time to look at the stars. Uh, now, uh, you, you presumably, most of you, uh, live in Ottawa or the Ottawa area, and so with light pollution, you may have to just trust that there are stars up there, uh, but if you use your memory or you do a Google search, you can actually see pictures of stars, yeah? and it really is amazing <laughs> to stand out under a starry sky and to just to feel not just personal insignificance and smallness, but to actually feel the grandeur and the glory and the bigness of reality. And then to know that that grandeur and glory and bigness of reality is not an end in itself. It is a sign. It is drawing you into it and, and then through it and past it to the cause that you can't see, but whose glory is revealed in the thing that he has made. And so as glorious and as significant and as awe-inspiring as the stars may be, it is just a shadow or a whisper of the great glory of the one who made it. And so we're to be in awe of the art, but for the glory of the artist. And so we look at the stars and we realize that they are revealing the glory and the majesty and the creative genius and power of the one who stands behind them, the one who has called them into existence through the sheer volition of his will. That is, you know, in Genesis 1, when God creates 
All he needs to do um, is speak and a universe comes into existence. All he needs to do is, is declare that there will be light and there is light. And in Genesis 1, it's amazing. You kind of get this, this throwaway line that, you know, and he also made the stars. You know, as if, of course he did. And it wasn't a big deal for him to do that. You know, whereas I think actually bringing the stars into existence is a relatively impressive thing. You know, but, but for God, it's nothing. God is omnipotent. There is nothing he can't do. He is not limited in any way. You know, he, he could have created a universe a trillion, si- a trillion times the size of this one with, with a trillion times more stars. It wouldn't have been any extra work for him because everything he does is done with the power of omnipotence, which means everything he does is equally easy for him. He never breaks a sweat. God is never in a position where he goes, oh, that, that, was, that was onerous, that was difficult, that was hard work. Whatever God does, he does effortlessly. Just the sheer power of his will, he speaks and stars are formed. If you ever start to think that that's anything less than remarkable, um, just do it yourself. <laughs> when we're done here, just later this evening, just speak and form stars. Just see, see what it's like. Well, the the Lord does it, and he does it to reveal his glory and his power. He does it for his own good pleasure, but he also does it for the sake of his his image bearers. He he does it for the sake of uh, sort of the creative integrity of the universe, but he does it to reveal himself to us. Creation is inherently revelatory. That is, creation is revelation. The very fact that anything exists redounds to the glory of God. The very fact that there is a universe points to the glory of God. And and the heavens, the psalmist starts out by by saying, the heavens declare the glory of God. There is a reason, and I want to be careful with this, of course, but there is a reason why historically in many parts of the world, nations and, and cultures and groups of people have worshipped the sun and the moon. There's a reason for that. It's obviously not right, but there is a sense in which when human beings look up, they are supposed to be struck by glory. And so it's not just, I mean, it obviously, it is idolatrous and it is wrong, but in an odd way, there's an impulse there which is a little bit better than the impulse of materialism or atheism, which works as hard as possible to, to press down all of that revelation and to deny that there is anything beyond the material that we can see. And so we don't worship the sun and the moon and the stars, but we do recognize that they, are, that they do evoke in us feelings and thoughts which are to be worshipful not of the material things themselves, but of the God who made them. So that they don't have in, intrinsic glory. That is, it's not that the stars and the sun and the moon have their own glory. It's that they have a glory which has been given to them by the creator. It's not inherent to them. It's a gift to them. And so when we look up, we see glory. But it's the glory of God. The glory of God revealed through the things he has made. Now, uh, Pastor Ray 
mentioned uh, having had me for one of the, the classes in apologetics uh, that he took. Uh, one, of, one of the classes that I teach, which is sort of similar to apologetics a little bit, one of, one of my favorites is a class in, on C.S. Lewis, uh, the life and thought of C.S. Lewis. And some of you are probably familiar with Lewis's writings, Narnia, you know, on the fiction side of things. Uh, then a lot of people have read his, sort of his you know, mere Christianity and, and those sorts of books. Um, his professional career, obviously, was in English literature, medieval Renaissance sorts of literature. And so he has one book called The Discarded Image, where he analyzes the way that the medievals viewed the universe. And it's a book, you know, I, I, vocationally, I have to read a fair bit. And um, it's not too often a book really does much for you. It sounds terrible to say, but uh, when you have to read a lot, you know, they sort of all just blend into one. This book, The Discarded Image, image actually changed how I view the world. And, and what changed my view of the world was I remember reading this book, and it was the evening, and it was dark, it was the winter, and so I, I read this chapter, and I went up for a walk. And I usually walk every night, and this one was intentional to try something. Lewis said in the book, you have to understand that for us in the contemporary world, when we think of, when we go outside and, and we look up at the sky, at the starry sky at night, we conceive of what we're looking at as space. And space sounds empty. Space is cold and lifeless, vast distances, uninhabited. So we get the sense like in the old westerns where you have everyone in the saloon and there's the piano music and there's the light and there's people talking and then you, you step outside the swinging doors out on the porch and you look out and you look out sort of in, into the desert landscape of the western and it's like what's going on is inside and he says when we look up at the stars it's like we are feeling like here on earth, we're on the inside, looking out. But the medievals had a very different view. And the ancients had a very different view. You have to understand, people used to feel like, not that they were on the inside looking out, but they were on the outside looking in. And you weren't looking out into the emptiness of space. You were looking up into the glory of heaven. And you were looking up into a, world, into a realm that wasn't empty and vast and lifeless. You were looking up into the realm of, of glory and light and angels and song and rejoicing. And your desire wasn't to stay here and to avoid that, your desire was to be brought up into the celebration of what was happening in the glory of the heavens. And it's interesting. Try it. Try going out one night safely in a group and um, try to toggle that in your mind. Inside looking out, 
or outside looking in. It makes a difference. Just like it, it, it makes a difference, you know, if depending, it, it makes a difference what, depending on which side of the window you're on. You, 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 you press your, your nose to the glass. Well, are, are you looking out? Are, are, are you inside looking out? How different is it if, if you're on the outside? Nose pressed to the glass trying to look in. And so Lewis says, you know, that's what we need to do. We need to, we need to try to remember consciously that when we, when we look at the stars, when we look at the sky, we are seeing the revealed glory of God. And, and we can train ourselves to do that. That is, we can train ourselves to look at the moon and think certain things. We can train ourselves to look at the stars and think certain things. That is, the sun, the moon, the stars, they can be reminders that we are to consciously reflect on various things, including the glory of God. Now, one of the things the psalmist is rejoicing in in this psalm is that the stars are communicating all of the time, but they're not using words. This is very interesting. Um, well, it was already mentioned that you know, I, I, I teach. And so you might wonder, like, what psychologically, you know, what do professors fear in academic contexts? Well, I had a bad dream. This is not a joke. It's not made up. You know, a lot of times pastors just make up stories. This is real. Uh, so, so I had a bad dream a couple of weeks ago. And, um, and it was this. I had a dream that... I was teaching Hebrew. And the reason that that's like a nightmare for me is I know I'm not a linguist. And so I would be singularly unqualified to teach Hebrew. And, and I had this whole, and in the dream sequence, the students were sort of coming up to their assignments, and I knew I wouldn't be able to grade their assignments properly. I then realized I hadn't done a syllabus, I hadn't assigned textbooks, and then I was having this ethical dis- this sort of debate with myself, do I just pass them on and hope no one notices, or do I have to come clean and tell everyone, sort of like, sorry, you really don't deserve a credit, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, so how do you handle this? Well... I won't tell you how I resolved that ethically uh, in in the context of the dream, but it it was horrifying to think about teaching a language that I'm certainly not an expert in. Now, in this room, I'd be fascinated to know actually how many different languages are spoken. Um, And and, and I won't poll the audience just now. Well, maybe I will. It's Saturday night. On a Sunday morning, you can't do things like that, but it's Saturday. Um, So how many of you speak more than one language? goodness. Um, how many of you speak like three or, three or more? Four or more? Really? How many? Four? And you speak five? Not bad. I speak 30 or so, but I'll keep it to myself. Uh, n- not, not reading Hebrew well, but anyway. So here's the thing. If I read to you Psalm 19 in Hebrew with the text supplied to me, how many of you would have understood it? Does anyone read Old Testament Hebrew? Okay. As soon as you use a particular language, 
you are immediately limiting the number of people who can understand the message. And, and then you have to wait for translation. In creation, there is never a need for translation. The stars do not speak Hebrew. The stars do not speak English. They don't speak Mandarin. They don't speak Swahili. It is not that one culture, one group, one part of the world has an advantage over another one when it comes to being able to understand the message of the stars. God's glory is revealed universally, generally to everyone through the things that he has made. So they don't use words, but their voice goes out into all the earth. It's a rich paradox. You know, they have no speech. You don't hear the, the stars talking, but they're communicating to everyone. Their, their voice is going out to everyone. And you don't need to know a particular language to benefit from the revelation of creation. Then the psalmist will talk about not just the stars, but particularly the sun, using uh, imagery which is really common in, in that sort of cultural uh, era of the sun being like a bridegroom or like a champion running his course. But no, notice the end of verse 6. This is the important part. Nothing is hidden from its heat or nothing is deprived of its warmth. The claim here is really important, and it's this. If you are on planet Earth, your, your life quite literally revolves around the sun. No sun, no life. And nothing, nothing is hidden from the sun. And so if the sun is part of that heavenly host which reveals the glory of God and nothing is hidden from it then what is deprived of the revelation of the glory of God and the answer is nothing no one there is no one who lives anywhere at any time who is deprived of the revelation of God's glory through the things he has made. Now, as great as that is, the stars and the sun will tell you about the glory of God. They'll tell you about sort of the, the existence and power of the creator. They declare his glory, but they don't declare to you his will. That is, they, they don't tell you how you ought to live in response to who he is. They don't name him. And so as... as Thankful as the psalmist is in praising God for the things he has made and the revelation that comes through the created order, he moves on in verse 7 to pivot from revelation of glory in what has been made to the greater revelation in the word. That is, God has spoken. He has entered into covenant with his people. He has breathed out his word, which is useful for all the things that were mentioned. He, has, he is a God who creates and reveals his glory. He's also a God who talks. He's a God who speaks. And of course, and, and, and obviously at one level, the, the interesting connection is that God creates the heavens to reveal his glory with a word. 
And, and so you have the word which brings cre the created order into existence. And now this same God, whose word is so powerful that when he speaks, the universe comes into existence, we find that he has spoken with that word of power to deliver a message to us, to tell us about what he's like. And so the psalmist says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Now, you'll notice a, a switch here. Notice verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Verse 4, in the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. But then verse 7, it's the law of the Lord. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord. And eventually in verse 14, uh, may this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord. The first six verses, when it refers to God, just uses the generic term El that we translate as God. That is, the powerful one. The, the supreme being. El. Verse 7 uses Yahweh. I am who I am. That is, the first six verses, even the, the, the title used is of God the creator. Verse 7 and following, it's covenantal. It is, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, this is the God who, who reveals himself at the burning bush as I am who I am, as, as Yahweh. This is the God who, who shows up in covenant faithfulness and love and mercy to deliver his people from slavery. This is the God who is there for people. He, he's not just a maker somewhere out there. He is the covenant God who enters into relationship with me. And it is his law, not just the law of the power the law of the covenant faithful God. His law is perfect. Now, law is, is Torah. And, and to, unfortunately, and I don't, I don't, there's nothing we can do about this, I don't think, at this time in history. But uh, unfortunately, law in a hyper, um, in, in a society which is sort of just, just filled with Hyper-litigation, lawsuits, criminal code. Yeah. The English word law just doesn't really capture what the Hebrew Torah means. Because it's hard to get excited about a legal code. of. So the text isn't saying the legal code of Yahweh is perfect. It's saying the Torah of Yahweh is perfect. Torah is it's like a way of life. It's, it's comprehensive instruction for how to live. Um, the Torah is often applied to uh, the Pentateuch. That is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Right? 
It's interesting, interesting to ask yourself, how, in what sense is Genesis law? Have you read Genesis? It's not like a legal code, it's narrative, it's story. Did any of you grow up in, like, did any of you, uh, maybe you do this here now, and, and so, um, maybe it's cutting edge, I don't know, maybe it's come back. Does anyone remember flannel graphs? Any of flannel graph stories, you guys remember that? Yeah, some of you don't, like, literally don't even know what I'm talking about right now, it's okay. Um, flannel graphs were like iPads, but with no technology, it's basically how it worked. Um, I never recall a flannel graph lesson about legal codes. You, you can't move legal codes around, even the two-dimensional form. They're just not exciting. But Genesis was like flannel graph material where you have all the two-dimensional characters with their robes and, and you know, the donkeys, and you sort of move them all around. And you know, Genesis is story. One of the things that's interesting is that, is that Genesis is Torah. That is, Genesis is law. And so how do you sort that out? Well, Genesis is, is, is law because Genesis is teaching you how to live before God. And one of the ways that God teaches us how to live before him is often through story, through narrative structures. And so when, when the psalmist is saying the law of the Lord is perfect, what he's saying is, is everything God has revealed is everything I need in order to live well in this world before God. God has not failed to give me every single thing I need to live properly before him. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. It, it, it nourishes who you are. It, it gives you all that you need. And so in theology, sometimes we, we talk about the four attributes of Scripture. The four attributes of Scripture, uh, you know, we, we talk about authority, that is the Word of God has full authority. Uh, it's ne- it has necessity, that is it's, we need it. It's sufficient, that is it's not lacking anything. And it has clarity, that is it's clear. The, the, the overall gospel message of Scripture is clear. Even a child can understand the gospel. And so the Word of God, you can, you can, then you can add things, like you know, the Word of God is inerrant, that is there's no errors in it, there's no mistakes in it. Uh, even more strongly in terms of logic, it's infallible, meaning it, it can't be mistaken. Not only is it not mistaken, it, God can't be mistaken, and God can't lie, and God knows everything. So if he, if he can't be mistaken, and he can't lie, and he knows everything, then whatever he says is going to be true. And, and that's what all of that stuff, honestly, like all of those terms, what it really amounts to is this— You can trust everything this book says. This is reliable. This is true. One of the things in God's kindness for me, I've had the opportunity to speak in a number of countries and continents, and one of the things that's absolutely astounding is this. I I can take the Bible and go anywhere on this planet and what this book says is exactly what every single person needs, regardless of their culture, regardless of their language, regardless of their socioeconomic you know, sort of uh, demographics. And, and, and there's a reason why on a Saturday night in Ottawa, it's actually worth our time to gather, to consider 
what someone wrote 3,000 years ago in Hebrew in a totally different culture because what this says resonates with our hearts today. Today, in a place of the world that David literally could not have imagined existed. Speaking a language which would have been totally incomprehensible gibberish to him. And, and I know that we're all very, very good-looking people, but if he had had any sense of what clothes we'd be wearing, he would have been scandalized. You know, what kind of, what kind of barbarous civilization you know, talks that way and dresses that way? And yet, nonetheless, we can take the Word of God, we can take the Bible, we can go anywhere in the world. And it speaks to the human condition. It speaks to the heart. Same problems that people are experiencing. The same turmoils. Same issues. Same solution. The love of God in Jesus Christ. The same thing that everyone has always needed. And God has revealed it to us in his word. So just note the law of the Lord is perfect. It refreshes the soul and notice that all of these things, some rough synonyms for the type of, for scripture, statutes, precepts, etc., commands, notice that they share in the nature of the one who has given them. So the law of the Lord is perfect. The statutes are trustworthy. The precepts are right. The commands are radiant. The fear of the Lord, speaking of, is, is another term for scripture, actually, is pure. See, the reason that the Bible has these characteristics is because God has those characteristics. And, and this is something which is important, actually. If you have ever been, um, like, deeply in love, and, and you get a letter... A letter is like a text, but longer. <laughs> you, you, you know, you, you, you pour over that letter, and, and, and you read it again, and again. And your assessment of the letter will never be greater than your assessment of the person who wrote it. If you know someone who is a habitual liar and they have proven themselves over and over and over again to be someone that you cannot trust. When they tell you something, you will not trust them. If you know someone who has been kind and gracious to you and, and, and over a long period of time, there's, the relationship is built up to a point where, where you know you can take them at their word. Then they tell you something and you will believe it. Because a person's word is only as good as their character. But an honest person, their words will have the mark of that person's character. So an honest person's words will be honest. A, a righteous person's words will be righteous. Uh, you know, in, in certain types of relationships, you know, a, a loving person's words will be loving. And so when God speaks... His word is going to have his attributes. So that when God speaks, his word is always pure because he is pure. When God speaks, this is why uh, Paul writes to Timothy about the holy scriptures. Why does he refer to them as holy? 
They are holy because of the, the songs that we were singing, singing reminded us God is holy, holy, holy. And so when God speaks, his word is holy too. God is absolutely righteous. When he speaks, his word is righteous. And so when God speaks, not only does it take on his characteristics, but because of his power, he, he enforces it. So we're told, this is something actually we really need to hear today, and, and you need to hear this today, but you also need to tell this to other people because our society, in fact, our world is desperate for this. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Now, righteous there just means it's on the right side of the standard. That is, so it's just, it's good, it's fair, it's right. Now, how far do you have to go today? And how much do you need to listen to before you can actually find something which is reliable and true? How much misinformation and disinformation, how much ideology, how much flat-out deception exists in our society right now? How, how many things can you hear that you can just say, yes, I can accept that as true? How often do we have to fact check? I mean, how often are we told one thing and it turns out that the people who told you that actually knew differently? I mean, how, how much, if, if we were to actually peel back all the sort of the, 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 the socio-political layers in North America, how much truth is there that is being sort of propagated in our society today? How much is spin? How much is propaganda? How much is, how much is true? How much do you hear on a daily basis which you can take to the bank because it's absolutely firm and trustworthy and reliable? I think, and this is just my opinion, and, and, and I've never been wrong before, but this might be the first time, but I, I doubt it. Like, I think it's almost nothing. I, I think you, you, you hear so much stuff today. Now, it could be, this is true. I, I'm not on any social media platform. I've never been on social media in my life. So, so it could be that I'm just cut off from the sources of truth. Uh, that, that could be. It, it could be that I don't know what's going on because I'm not on social media. And, and that's where you find truth today. That's possible. Like, like, where do you go to find something where you're like, I just want to hear something which is firm. Here it is. You know, every, every five minutes, what you're allowed to think or say is changing in our society. Well, well, where am I going to find something which is going to tell me what's actually true, not just because the wind is blowing a particular way in the polling numbers today, but because it's actually built into the fabric of the universe? Like, where am I going to find something which I don't need to worry about? To, if I say it today, will I be canceled tomorrow? Because I wasn't a mind reader about where the trends were going. Where can I find something which is true and it's not going to be called false tomorrow? Or even if it's called false tomorrow, it doesn't matter because it is true. It's not because it's a book. It's because it's the word of God. 
that when God speaks, he is not wrong. And when God speaks, he does not worry about the calendar date. Like, whoa, shouldn't have said that. It's now 2023. When God speaks, he declares what is. And you can rely on it today and tomorrow and until Christ returns. His word is an unchanging foundation for life. And so build your life on it because it is a firm foundation for everything you will experience. You, you, you try to build your life on, on, on the changing, shadowy nature of what our society holds today and won't think tomorrow, you will forever be quaking and unstable in navigating life. And this is one of the reasons why, and I'll, be, I, I'll, I'll have mercy on you and not talk about this too long, but... Um, you, you wonder why young people are having such a hard time in our society today. You, you wonder why. Why is it so hard on our young people growing up today? Is because we have, as a society, we have intentionally, intentionally detonated bombs on all of the foundation blocks that used to hold a society together. And, and then, then we're surprised. Why is there a mental health crisis? Why is there an epidemic in, in, in drug overdoses? Why, why is there all these problems? It's because you have told people to live in, in, a, in a way which literally has them, you know, sort of trying to walk on water, looking for something firm, and they're drowning. And what you need is you need to come along to people, you need to tell them, listen, there actually is a rock for your feet. Like, there is truth. There, there is a way of living which is in with the grain of the universe. That's why, you know, you move from creation to the word. They go together. God creates with the word. But God's word also shows us this is the nature of reality. Don't fight it. Live according to how God has made you to be and live according to his ethical standards. That's how you'll flourish. But you can't flourish if you're running against the grain of the universe, which God has made. And it's not changeable, and it's not up to majority vote in a democracy. The universe is the way God has made it. And in his love and mercy and compassion for us, he has given us his words that we know how to live. And if by his grace and by his spirit we live according to his word, one of the things we find is, yes, there are challenges, yes, there are struggles. But here's a question for you. And you don't need to answer this, but in your own experience, when did your life ever go better when you disregarded God's instructions and did it your own way? When did your life turn out better when you decided to rely on your own wisdom rather than the wisdom of God? When did your life go better when you decided to go against the grain of the way God designed the universe and human nature? When did your life go better when you turned away from God's ethical and moral and righteous standards? And the answer, of course, is, is of anyone here of any age or experience, we know the answer is never. God has made us to flourish when we obey his word. 
And because of that, the psalmist says, God's words are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Now, it wasn't that long. It was Thanksgiving. Probably some, some of us ate a little bit and enjoyed it. Uh, Christmas is coming. You know, nostalgia for all those Christmas meals and all the rest. Lovely. Um, without, without getting into the theology of this, you know, Halloween is on Tuesday. Probably some of us have already been eating boxes of Halloween candy ahead of time, you know, just, just getting ready for that night. Um, and, and you know, you, everyone has their, you know, your favorite treats, the things that you like. In the ancient world, there was nothing sweeter than honey. Um, there's actually a reason for this. Uh, you know, one, of the reasons, one of the things that we struggle with, the reason that we struggle so much with a sweet tooth is that simple sugars are good for us in small quantities, in the natural world, they're almost impossible to find. So in, in the psalmist day, if you wanted something really sweet, you got honey. Now, I'm not sure if you are aware of this, because everything that we get comes packaged in stores or through drive through windows. But to actually find wild honey, wild honey doesn't grow on trees. It's produced by bees. And, and bees sting. So if you're going to get honey, there's a cost involved. Okay? It's, like, it's like, imagine how much more exciting and entertaining it would be every, every time you, you go to Tim Hortons or Starbucks and you order coffee and the window comes down, hornets come out and you have to grab your coffee and drive off. Like, like, <laughs> that's the sort of thing where it's like, it's great, but there's a cost here. So I'm probably not getting honey all of the time. Okay? When I get it, it's a big deal. It's a big thing. It's the sweetest thing you're ever going to have. The psalmist is saying, God, your word is better to me than that. Better than gold. I teach at a small Bible college. I'm a pastor. So obviously I'm fabulously wealthy. One of the things I can't help but notice, though, is for people who are just hoping desperately to one day have the level of wealth that I have, People will give everything to try to get a little bit more money. They'll sacrifice their health, their time, their enjoyment. They'll sacrifice a relationship with their children. They sacrifice relationship with spouse, aging parents who they, have, who they should be taking care of. Serving the Lord, church, their neighbors. People will sacrifice almost anything for money. P- people will, will run themselves ragged for a raise or, or a house with, with one more bedroom. Or today, a house at all with how expensive things are. Here's one of the things I, I don't know most of you. Here's one of the things I, I, I imagine I do know about you. It would be this. If I gave you a gift of an ATM in your house and every single day you could withdraw $1,000, first of all, you would, you would like me even more than you do now. But here's a question for you. Every morning you can withdraw $1,000. How many mornings do you miss? Let's say it takes 15 minutes. You, you, have to, you have to stand there for 15 minutes. 
How many days do you just not have time? The word of God is better than gold. If someone followed you around, would they say, the Bible is worth more to them than anything else in this world? As believers, do our lives actually look like we would rather have this truth that, that $1,000 a day or $10,000 a day or, or all of the gold that a king can have? And, and the problem is that we know the answer we're supposed to give. But what does our life show? Because here's the thing, though, guys. This actually is better than gold. Do, do, you, like, do you believe that? Like, does your life show that? That this truth is better than money? Like, there are all kinds of people who end up with a whole lot of money and their lives are a train wreck. To, to say nothing of eternity. There is nothing this world provides which has any value whatsoever in comparison to the truth of the word of God. And our lives should reflect that. Because it's by your word, verse 11, your servant is warned. It keeps me from sin. It, it, it's like a, a, a searchlight pointing out my, my errors and my sin and my faults inside of my heart. Which is why the psalmist then prays, because he turns from the word to prayer, keep your servant also from willful sins, may they not rule over me, then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. So in the same way that the sun shines down and reveals God's glory to everyone, the word of God is like light shining into every crevice of your heart. Nothing is, in the same way that nothing is hidden from the sun on earth, nothing inside of the human heart is hidden from the light of the word. It, it reveals everything. And if you love God and you want to be righteous, as the psalmist here, you will actually rejoice that the word of God can shine into every dark area because none of us are perfect yet. And so the word of God, by the spirit of God, prayerfully, it will show us where we need to repent and grow and, and increase in holiness and in fervor for the Lord. And, and, and you're not going to get it from the stars, but you do get it from the word. And so you love the word and you pray over the word because it's by the word that you reap spiritual rewards as it cleanses you from sin and the mercy and power of God and shows you more of God's will and the beauty and glory of his nature, particularly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the psalmist starts, Lord, I praise you for the glory revealed in creation. I praise you for the surpassing goodness and glory in light of your word. And then he makes it personal. Lord, forgive me for my sins. Show me where I'm failing. Refine me and help me to grow. And may these words, and may this meditation of my heart, that is not just the words out of my mouth, but who I am in my heart, that is in the deepest part of who I am, may my words and my heart be pleasing to you. Yahweh, my covenant God, you are my rock the firm foundation, and my Redeemer, the one who sets me 
free. Well, may God help us. May God help us to to love his word more than honey, to, to value his word more than money. May God help us to rejoice in his glory because it's pretty great. Starry sky, that's pretty great. Reading about Jesus in the gospel of John, that's pretty great. God has given us everything we need in his word to nourish and strengthen our souls, to, to illuminate our minds, and to draw us closer to him through Jesus. I'm going to ask that we just take a moment uh, as individuals. I'll lead us in prayer in, in just a moment or two. But just as individuals, let's just bow before the Lord. And, and let's, let's all pray individually before I lead us that God will reveal his glory to us in a new and fresh way that will love his word, that will apply it, that will love him, and that the thoughts of our heart and the meditation, the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart will be pleasing in his sight. So let's pray. Our Lord, you know our hearts perfectly. You know our every thought. Father, you know you know every sin. You know every act of kindness. You know every expression of love. You know every every feeling and, and word and truth and deed of worship. And so, Father, we pray that you'll forgive us for our sins. Shine your light into our hearts. But Lord, shine your light not to condemn, but to purify us. Give us boldness in our forgiveness in Christ. And Lord, help us to look at the stars and praise your name. Help us to read your word and rejoice. And may what we think and say and do and feel be pleasing in your sight. For you are our covenant God. You are our rock and our redeemer. Lord, as we sing now, help us not merely to sing. Help us to worship. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.